Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As we start this session, have you ever thought, when you, look, when you read the New Testament, it does seem, doesn't it, that the biblical view of sex does seem to be negative. Now we've seen some of the positives last time. But you know, when I did a search for sex or sexual in my Bible software, pretty much every occurrence that comes up in the New Testament is negative. So 34 verses came up, and all but two were explicitly linked with sexual immorality or sin. So when you read the New Testament, it can give the impression, can't it, that the Bible, therefore, is anti-sex, because it's about fleeing sexual immorality about having nothing to do with sexual immorality, of being not even a hint of sexual immorality amongst you. So it can give the impression that the Bible is anti-sex, so if you wanted to be generous, you could say it was just prudish. And so you can start to feel some of the force of the complaints your friends might make, that the Bible is anti-sex, anti-pleasure, anti-life. You know, there's many verses about fleeing sexual immorality. That's not enlightened, people will say. And so you could then ask really reasonably, why did God create us with such strong sexual desires? And why does he give us such strong sexual emotions that we feel? Well, let me make a general point before we then have a discussion and then get into um, this section. Now, when you're trying to work out God's purpose on something from the Bible, you need to do more than just a word search. Now, you can search for words, and it'll give you a start and a hint, but you need to go much further than that. Now, you need to start thinking about uh, themes and concepts and allusions in the way in which literary forms speak about things. And what we'll start to see as we go on is that while the Bible does have a lot to say negatively about sexual immorality... It does have much to say positively about sexuality in general. So we saw some of that in the the last session, the way that God designed sex and the purpose for marriage and sex for marriage. Not a small and insignificant purpose, but a huge one. The building up of a committed marriage. And so Ash, again, you can see Ash is a very good book on this. I found it really helpful. Marriage was not ordained to promote the selfish pleasures, which were the sexual material of either partner. It was ordained so that in the delight and the security of faithfulness, man and wife should enjoy serving God and caring for his world. You see, marriages are sustained and strengthened through that sexual relationship. The corollary that we saw was to use sex for anything else doesn't achieve uh, that end and ultimately ends badly. You see, so for one reason for the Bible calling for people to flee sexual immorality is that, but there's much more. And so as we begin the section, there's a couple of questions. I think I've put them on your your sheet uh, for you to have a think about this in your small groups again. Uh, Now, why do people find sex so fascinating? And why are uh, sexual emotions so strong? Now, we all know the, the kind of line over that sex sells. Uh, the people are fascinated by sex. In the events week, uh, the sex talk at lunch bars are always the one that people say is going to be the fullest. Uh, people are fascinated by the topic. Why is that? Have a, have a little discussion. Do you know, when God, when God makes something, he doesn't do it just for the sake of doing it. 
know, often, I don't know if you feel this, when you do things, sometimes you can't kind of work out why you've done them. Or I, you see, I see with my children, often I kind of see things with my children that, that make me think, oh yeah, I do that too. Yeah, but you know, my children do something, I say, why did you do that? And they say, I don't know. I say, you must know why you did it. I've got no clue why they did it. I just did it. But when we come to think about why God does something, it's a really important point to say that God doesn't just do things. God always has a purpose and a plan for it. Now, often we can then work out that plan and purpose by looking into the Bible and the Scriptures. Sometimes we can get a partial idea of that. We can see some of it. Sometimes we can't see it. But when we come to this topic of sex and sexuality, we start to see some of the reason and the purpose why God made us in this way. Why people do find sex so fascinating. You see, when we look at human sexuality, God had a reason for making us in this way. Now, I get much of this talk from a a conference talk in a book that John Piper wrote. And here's the point which um, which he gave at the beginning of his talk, which I think is exactly right. Here's the point. Sexuality was designed by God so that he might be more deeply knowable. Sexuality was designed by God so that he might be more deeply knowable. Listen to this from uh, Piper again. His goal in creating human beings with personhood and passion was to make sure that there would be sexual language and sexual images that would point to the promises and the pleasures of God, his relationship to his people and our relationship to him. In other words, the ultimate reason, not the only one, why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. God's made himself more deeply knowable through the creation of the marriage relationship. God always wanted to be known, and he makes the relationship which he designed us for more knowable through the relation, the creation of this sexual marriage relationship. There's a connection between God and sex. And as we turn to the Bible, we see this quite clearly. So turn to Ezekiel 16. And we'll start to see this. So you have the Psalms and then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In this chapter, what we, what we see is God describing his relationship with Israel. And just listen to how he does that. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I saw, I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. You see the undeserved mercy of God there. Israel was helpless, they were nothing, despised by everyone, and yet God passed by and says, live. That's how the Christian life begins. Well, verse 7. 
I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. You see the the sexual language which is used there to describe the appearance of this woman Israel and then God spreading the corner of his garment over her, symbolizing the new relationship, the marriage relationship, the solemn oath that is given. God enters into this marriage relationship with Israel. Israel belongs to God as his wife. It goes on in verse Uh, 9 I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments I adorned you with jewellery I put bracelets on your arm and a necklace round your neck I put a ring on, on your nose earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head you were adorned with gold and silver your clothes were, were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you see the, the wonderful relationship that's been spoken of here. Of God's relationship with his people. Of God marrying his people. Enter into the commitment to his bride. In the way he lavishly provides for his people. In verse 9 he cleanses and anoints his bride. In verse 10 he clothes her with fine linen. With fine clothes. In verses 11 to 13 he adorns her with fine jewellery. In the second half of verse 13 he provides her with royal food. Displays of love which knows no limits. This is how one person describes his. These lavish provisions portray a husband whose love for his wife knows no bounds. The account reaches its climax in the notice of the stunning effect of his kindness. Jerusalem has become a beautiful queen. And see all through that though that sexual language is used to describe the relationship. So that we might know God better. You see God created sexuality so that we might know him more deeply. We see what kind of relationship God has with his people and how intimate it is. And without marriage and sex we would not have that language to describe it. Or think of the Song of Songs. If you've read that. It's a book whose theme is love. It's talking about a human love, but in a bigger sense, it's talking about God's love with, for his people. Now, in one writer puts it, it says, it's not a philosophical treatise about love, nor is a sex manual. It's a rhapsody of love, an outpouring of the feelings of people who are in love and are experiencing it in the flesh with all its attendant pains and pleasures. Some argue it's an extended commentary on Genesis 2.25 which says they were both naked and felt no shame. 
Now, the book is full of sensuous language. It describes the various parts of the male and female bodies. The delights of seeing, of tasting, of touching, hearing and smelling. Listen to the second verse of the poem. It let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. You see, as you read through that book, there's a description of the nature of sexual love. Not provided in a vacuum. There is pain associated with it. There's the beauty and the joy of it. It does have descriptions of harshness, of sexual violence, of the brooding presence of death, the disregard of dignity, the jeerings which are crude and explicit of people who look at the woman and judge her for what she is like. And yet for all of that, it is a beautiful description of sexual love. And you know, the, the book has long been seen by people as an allegory of God's relationship with his people. Now, while the allegory isn't probably quite the right way of reading it, it is uh, talking about human love as well, it's a powerful description of married love. Describing things which are fulfilled in the new covenant, the new creation. Now, be careful, it's not that we are going to have sex with God, that's a pagan doctrine. Rather, it's the intensity of the emotion and the feelings which are generated, the the closeness, the vulnerability which we will feel, all within that close, faithful, safe relationship. And it's not just an Old Testament idea. You see the, the very same thing in the New Testament. Now, if you if you think in the in the New Testament about how marriage is uh, compared to Christ and the church. The marriage for which sexual love is such a strong part, which is about, sex, about self-giving, is there in the marriage relationship, which describes God's relation, Christ's relationship with the church. So, so turn to Ephesians 5, and we'll read uh, that together. says, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You see in that section from Ephesians how Paul is saying that marriage is a reflection of what Christ's relationship to the church is. Now, so you see in verse 28 that Paul tells husbands that they should love their wives as they love their own body. Now, that can seem a little bit weird 
And now is he saying, love your wives by being selfish and love your wives by going to the gym every day and making sure you've, you've got a good body for them. And it's not quite what he means. You see what Paul goes on saying the same thing in verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does, the church. You see, most people try to care for themselves, and when they're sick, they go to the doctors. And most people don't hate their bodies, but feed and cares for them. And so as we feed and care for our own bodies, husbands are meant to feed and care for their wives, to love them and care for them, as Christ does for the church. You see, this marriage relationship is meant to be a reflection then of God's relationship to us through Christ. We're united to Christ. We're one in Christ. The same is true of husbands and wives. Husbands and wives are united together. They become one. Now, the biblical math says one plus one equals one. Now, we are united with Christ. In marriage, we become one flesh. And so that's why Paul then quotes from Genesis 2. Did you see that kind of popping up in verse 31? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The man and the woman become one flesh. That's why it's entirely appropriate for husbands to love his wife as his own body. For in marriage, his wife is a part of him. She's his very self. The sexual relationship in marriage shows that two people can become one. How this couple can be nourished and strengthened by a sexual relationship. But you see, Paul says much more. He points to the fact in verse 32 that this mystery is speaking of Christ and the church. The mystery of two becoming one speaks of Christ and the church. A profound mystery that's been made clear to us. Because we are united to Christ, all of us. And in being united to Christ, we receive all the benefits of what Christ has done for us. And how can that happen? Well, we see some of it in what the relationship is like through marriage. If God didn't create us with all those desires and feelings and emotions, and didn't create the relationship through which we see it perfectly and beautifully, then we wouldn't have the language to describe this relationship with Christ in the church marriages are meant to be a picture of the relationship we have with God through Christ now granted not all marriages achieve this we fail in the regard but we can see something of the powerful relationship that's brought about through the sexual union we can see how great marriage is and how this works but if notice this, if God hadn't created marriage we would not have this language he wouldn't be as deeply knowable in this way. We wouldn't have the sexual imagery to describe the relationship we have with God through Christ. See, the ultimate reason for us being sexual beings is to make God more deeply knowable to us. And notice that this it goes some way to answering why being single is good. Because ultimately, marriage is not the goal. The goal is a relationship with God. Now many people who are single can end up idolising marriage as if marriage will be the thing to solve all our problems. Or if they don't get married, that they'll be a failure. 
But we need to see, though, and we see this through the kind of the testimony of the whole scriptures, that marriage is pointed to something bigger, to the relationship that we have with Christ. And see, our desire for marriage should be focused on God, really, and ultimately. The desires for intimacy and closeness, for love and relationship, for vulnerability, all should find their fulfilment in Christ. That's where the ultimate the reality is, and that's where it will last forever. You remember in the new heavens that marriage will be gone. Because we will have the relationship with Christ that we were designed for. Okay, so we've seen that sexuality was designed by God so that God might be more deeply knowable. But then also note the, the correlate of that. Sexual language in the Bible is also used to show how terrible it is to turn away from God. So, just here, the positive is that the Bible is about sex and sexuality. Sexuality was designed by God so that he might be more deeply knowable. And so it's against that backdrop why we see the New Testament telling us that we should flee sexual immorality. You could, you could state uh, the point negatively that all misuses of our sexuality distort the true knowledge of Christ. All misuses of our sexuality distort the true knowledge of Christ. Okay, second point then is sex and lies about God. And if you come back to Ezekiel 16 and you'll start to see this. You see, he, in Ezekiel 16, he's described the way in which he's loved his people, how he's married his people. And so see how then the account goes on in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put them on, to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them, and the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happens, declare, this is what has happened, declares the sovereign Lord. Can you feel some of the horror of what you read in Ezekiel 16? After we've read of everything that God has done, the beauty that he's given this this bride, and the way he's adorned her and loved her, and she turns around to become an adulterous prostitute. In this relationship with God, and yet she turns and prostitutes herself with all who will pass by. I know some of you here will know very keenly the pain of divorce. But you can start to see why divorce causes God pain. Because he feels that when his people turn away from him. When they turn to idols, it is described as people prostituting themselves. If you're understanding the pain and the horror of divorce and marital unfaithfulness helps us to see the pain that God feels when people turn away from him. 
You see, our sexuality is meant to be used according to God's ways to strengthen the relationship between a husband and wife. And it's because, the, and it's because that is the context for sex, because the marriage relationship is one of faithfulness. Not temporary, but faithful, as long as you both shall live. And the reason for that is that God will never be unfaithful to his people. He never has an affair with others and breaks away from his people. Never unfaithful. Which is why we see in Malachi, God hates divorce. Divorce is not what the marriage relationship is meant to be about. I hate divorce, says God. Our marriages should point to the faithfulness of God. You see, when we don't use our sexuality correctly, we are distorting the knowledge of God. We're distorting what it means to know God. You see, sexual activity outside of marriage is never going to build a marriage. It's never going to strengthen a covenant between a husband and a wife. Sex is meant for that one relationship alone. It's meant to speak of faithful commitment to another. And any use outside of that doesn't do that. It tells lies about God and the relationship he has with us. It says that being with someone is not really a big deal. That being bonded to them is something you can, you can start and then you can end. And you can move from one to the other to the next. And it doesn't matter. That's how John Piper puts it. All misuses of our sexuality... Adultery, fornication, illicit fantasies, masturbation, pornography, homosexual behaviour, rape, sexual child abuse, bestiality, exhibitionism and so on distort the true knowledge of God. Can you start to see how serious sexual sin is? When you start to see it was created by God so that we might know him more deeply... And then when we distort that, we are actually distorting our relationship with him and we're telling lies about him. You see, every decision that we make sexually needs to bear that in mind. And as we come to the New Testament and we see those calls to flee sexual immorality, we need to take them seriously for that reason. Some of you will have been at Word Alive and if you were, I would encourage you to get um, the talks by Don Carson, where he speaks on Jeremiah. And he shows very forcefully there the way in which sexual language is used to describe their uh, turn from God and how serious it is. And when we sin sexually, we are doing the same kind of things. And so let's make sure that we don't distort the knowledge of God by misusing our sexuality. Okay, well, it would be good to um, spend some time just with ones and twos and threes, not ones, twos and threes. You can pray on your own if you want. Um, but it would be good to have a little discussion about the things that you've uh, we've discussed. If there's things that are unclear, you can write them down and we can have a question time later to try and clear anything up. Um, but it would be also good to pray with each other. Yeah, about some of the things uh, that we've learned. Should we do that?